0: The time is at hand.
1: The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army.
0: When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. But I am telling you right now! We need a great reset.
1: And this is is extremely extremely dangerous dangerous to our our democracy. democracy.
0: Babylon the Great is fallen. Is fallen.
1: Welcome to In Dark Places. My name is Jumbo Fugit. I have all the receipts. Did you survive? the big FEMA emergency broadcast alert? Yeah, FEMA and the FCC conducted an emergency broadcast test for all cell phones and mobile devices and Wi-Fi signals and pretty much anything. TVs, stuff like that. And the test was to activate the alien implant that is embedded up in your nose. So, look out. Don't say we didn't try to warn you. Doorbell Camera Captures Visit from Men in Black by Tim Banal. Hey, thanks Tim. A peculiar video captured by Doorbell Camera in California shows two mysterious suit-clad individuals knocking on the front door Of a home, as what appears to be a UFO hovers in the sky outside, and some suspect that the puzzling pair could be the infamous men in black. The very weird scene reportedly unfolded last Wednesday afternoon when a woman's ring system alerted her to the presence of some mysterious strangers at her doorstep. The visitors in question, one of whom was knocking on the door, were two men wearing suits and dark sunglasses. Uncertain as their identity, she texted her children to see if they might know them, but they did not. Though when they later looked at the video, they noticed something rather strange in the background. As the two men linger at the woman's doorstep waiting to see if they will answer them, a dark orb can be seen hovering in the sky behind them. The mysterious strangers, combined with the curious looking UFO, have led many to wonder if perhaps they were the men in black. Or perhaps even aliens visiting the woman's home for reasons unexplained. Of course, more skeptical viewers argue that the two men probably had an innocuous reason for the house call. And that the UFO in the background is a balloon or some other prosaic object that just so happened to be in the film at the perfect time. And now, here is your Nicolas Cage meltdown of the week.
0: Look like a clown in that stupid jacket. This is a snakeskin jacket. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief
1: in personal freedom. Come here. So I'm sorry to do this to you here in front of a crowd and all But I want you to get up and apologize to my girl I'm sorry That's good Now go get yourself a beer I think that was probably Nicolas Cage's first weird type of movie It's pretty much all he's known for these days is those crazy avant-garde type artistic movie film things that make no sense to anyone but him. That was from Wild at Heart,
0: 1990. Pretty crazy movie. This is Mr. Haunted, and I figure it's about time for some real Halloween scary stories. This is the story of Ronald Clark O'Brien, also known as The Man Who Killed Halloween, and The Candyman. He was an American murderer who fatally poisoned his son on Halloween in 1974 in an attempt to collect life insurance. The background on this guy, not much information exists other than the fact that he was born on October 19th, 1944. He lived with Daneen, his wife, in Deer Park, Texas. They had two children, Timothy, in 1966, and Elizabeth, in 1969. O'Brien worked as an optician at Texas State Optical in Sharpstown, Houston. He was also a deacon for the Second Baptist Church, also singing in the choir and being in charge of the local bus program. On Halloween, 1974, O'Brien and another parent took Timothy, Elizabeth, and two other children trick-or-treating in Pasadena, Texas. Upon visiting a particular house where there did not appear to be anyone home, the group moved on. O'Brien stayed behind in case someone answered the door. He quickly caught back up with them, holding five pixie sticks. According to him, the homeowner was simply taking their time to respond. He gave one pixie stick to each of the children before giving the final one to a child who was not part of the group. When it began to rain, the trick-or-treating was cut short, and the group headed back to their homes. Before bed, little Timothy asked if he could eat some of his candy. His parents agreed, and he started with the pixie sticks. Not long afterwards, he complained that the candy tasted unusually bitter. O'Brien helped his son wash away the taste by giving him some Kool-Aid. Timothy began having stomach pains, running to the bathroom, where he started vomiting and convulsing. He went limp in his father's arms and died on the way to the hospital. A pathology report revealed that the pixie sticks had been laced with potassium cyanide. The wrappers had been opened and poisoned before being resealed with a stapler. Timothy had consumed enough poison to have killed two adults. Fortunately, Elizabeth and the other three children had not eaten their pixie sticks. Timothy's murder prompted uproar in the community, with numerous parents bringing their children's Halloween candy to police in fear that it may be poisoned. It seemed as if a stranger had been handing out poison candy with the sole intention of killing as many children as possible. This was initially believed by the police, but it didn't take long for suspicion to fall upon O'Brien. He could not remember which house he got the pixie sticks from, despite the fact that the group had only visited a few homes across two streets before it started raining. None of the houses the group had visited that evening had been handing out pixie sticks. To top it all off, the owner of the house, who O'Brien claimed to have only seen his arm, which he described as hairy, was not even home at the time. It eventually turned out that O'Brien was over $100,000 in debt and had taken out a $10,000 life insurance policies on his children months before Timothy's death. In fact, he kept taking out life insurance policies on them, bringing the total to $60,000. His plan was to fatally poison Timothy and Elizabeth to collect their life insurance and ease his financial woes. He gave the spare pixie sticks to the other three children in an attempt to cover up his tracks. He was arrested on November 5th. O'Brien maintained his innocence during the trial, but the evidence against him was too overwhelming to ignore. He had shown an unusual interest in cyanide, asking where he could purchase some and how much he needed for a lethal dosage. Meanwhile, his defense relied on the decades-old urban legend of a stranger handing out Halloween candy laced with deadly materials. On June 3rd, my birthday, 1975, O'Brien was found guilty of his son's death, as well as four counts of attempted murder, and he was sentenced to death. Not long after he was convicted, his wife divorced him. While on death row, he was despised by his fellow inmates, who condemned him for killing his own child. On March 31st, 1984, Just after midnight, O'Brien was executed by lethal injection. Before his execution, he continued to insist that he was innocent of any wrongdoing. A crowd of demonstrators gathered outside as he died, mockingly shouting, Trick or treat! Trick or treat!
1: Jimmy Haunted thank you sir as Jimmy said we're doing all true scary Halloween stories not only this week but all month long hey why not <laughs> that's what I always think of when it's October just immediately think of Halloween so we should do a whole month of it The Lask Family Massacre William B.J. Lysk brutally murdered his father, William Lisk, stepmother, Susan Lask, and 23-year-old stepbrother, Derek Griffin, on Halloween night in 2010. When Derek's 16-year-old brother, who had been staying the night at their biological father's, discovered the bodies the next morning, he at first thought it was a Halloween prank. One day later, in an unrelated tragedy, B.J.'s aunt, Sue Dunmire, died in a garage fire. B.J., who had a documented history of mental illness, pleaded guilty to bludgeoning Derek with a call hammer and then fatally shooting William and Susan. Evidence showed that Susan had been assaulted prior to or after her death. B.J. killed himself in prison in 2015 more than four years after pleading guilty to the crimes he committed on Halloween.
0: Suicide mistaken for Halloween decoration? The body was in plain view of the entire apartment complex, and they did nothing. A few decades ago, Halloween decor amounted to a lone jack-o'-lantern left grinning in a home's window as a welcome to trick-or-treaters. More recently, that aspect of the annual candy grab has been elevated to dizzying displays of orchestrated spectacle, even as the door-to-dooring of costumed tykes has dwindled to the merest trickle in some areas. The most sedate homeowners unbend enough to set out a plastic skull or two, or festoon their property shrubbery with fake cobwebs, but their more exuberant neighbors go whole hog with the spooks and gore, putting a coffin here, a skeleton there, a hanging man somewhere, and other things. It's that last bit which has contributed to an occurrence of the most macabre sort having become accustomed to over-the-top Halloween ornamentation and even inured to it, whatever that means, in October 2005, passerbys mistook a suicide by hanging for a Fright Night prop. On October twenty-sixth, two 2005, the corpse of a 42-year-old woman was left suspended in public view for hours in Frederica, Delaware, because her lifeless body was assumed to be yet another Halloween display. The unnamed woman hung herself from a tree located across a moderately busy road from some homes. Her body, suspended about 15 feet above the ground, could easily be seen from passing vehicles. State Police Spokesman Corporal Jeff Oldham and neighbors said people noticed the body around seven thirty that morning, but dismissed it as a holiday prank. Authorities arrived at the scene at eleven to begin the process of examining the scene and removing the body. The deceased, I like when they say decedent, sounds scarier. The decedent lived about a quarter mile from where her body was discovered. Similar, in mid-October 2009, the decomposing body of a 75-year-old suicide victim sat undisturbed on the balcony of the deceased's home in Marina del Rey, California, for several days because neighbors assumed it was merely part of a Halloween display. Mustafa Mahmoud Zayed had apparently been dead for three days with a single gunshot wound to one eye. He was slumped over a chair on the third-floor balcony of his apartment on Bora Bora Way, uh, said cameraman Austin Raishbrook, who was on the scene when authorities were alerted to the body. Neighbors told Racebrook that they noticed the body three days earlier, but didn't bother calling authorities because it looked like a Halloween dummy. The body was in plain view of the entire apartment complex, and they did nothing. Racebrook said, It's very strange. It did look unreal, to be honest. An investigator with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department said the case is an apparent suicide and declined to comment further. These grisly accounts of suicides being mistaken for Halloween tomfoolery is the reverse of what we've previously seen. Deliberate attempts at presenting spooktacular visual effects resulting in actual accidental demises. All too often, young persons called up to stage fake hanging scenes as part of scary tableau have fatally miscalculated, thereby ending their lives.
1: A nine-year-old girl dressed in a Halloween costume was accidentally shot by a relative who thought she was a skunk. The girl was stood outside her Pennsylvania home during a party when the incident happened. Police said the girl was wearing a black costume and a black hat with a white tassel. A male relative apparently mistook her for a skunk and fired a shotgun, hitting her in the shoulder, arm, back, and neck. She was rushed to the hospital following the incident at Halloween in 2016. Oh boy, there should be some wild life around here.
0: Surprise!
1: The McDonald's happy meal, guys. Yep,
0: get the McDonald's. McDonald's! Regular soft drink and regular fries.
1: And they are lion. Lion! What do you put in your McDonald's Halloween pumpkins? Booty and McBo, matey. Carrot the McGoblin. Golden McPumpkin, partner. Now you can collect one of three different pumpkins
0: with the purchase of every McDonald's Halloween pumpkin happy meal. What you put in them is up to you.
1: One of the most horrific recent events to happen on Halloween took place in Napa Valley, California, in 2004. Housemates, Adrian, and Stagna, Leslie and Maraza and Lauren Menza had spent the evening handing out candy to trick-or-treaters. After going to bed, Laura woke up to the sounds of Adrian screaming at 2 a.m. She ran outside in horror, but after hearing screaming again, she ran back inside and then discovered both her friends had been stabbed and were barely alive. She again ran out of the house, and called 911. Her two friends later died. The killer was Adrian's best friend's fiancé, Eric Koppel, who committed the murders because he was jealous of the friendship between Adrian and his girlfriend.
0: Reported on October 31st, 2016, a man dressed as Freddy Krueger showed up to a Texas Halloween party and shot five people. In the movie A Nightmare on Elm Street, crazed murderer Freddy Krueger kills his victims with a glove made of claw-like razors, tormenting them in their sleep and then chasing them in real life. His skin is burned and disfigured, covered only by the gloves, fedora, and a red and green striped sweater. In San Antonio, early Sunday morning, a man dressed up as the fictional serial killer appeared uninvited at a Halloween house party at about 5 a.m., police told TV station KENS 5. The man dressed as Freddy Krueger and his friends were involved in an altercation reported the San Antonio Express News that escalated when people at the party tried to remove the uninvited guests. That's when Freddy Krueger pulled a gun from his costume and started firing. Four men and one female were hit, police told the news. Neighbors heard the gunshots and called 911. It woke me up in the middle of the night, William Warren told ABC Affiliate. I heard a bunch of yelling and screaming and hollering. Next thing I know, I heard a couple of shots and then four or five shots. After that, and I could see the flashes and everything. At least three male victims were transported to University Hospital and treated, reported the uh, Express News. A fourth male victim was treated at Baptist Medical Center. The female victim drove herself to the hospital but crashed on the way. The suspects fled and have not been found.
1: That was Mr. Haunted with his Michael Bean impersonation. Uncanny. A mm, little inside joke. This is a story sent in by Dr. Octagonopus. Thanks, Doctor. When I was really little, my parents would let me stay up late on the weekends and watch TV until I fell asleep. I really loved these times, and I would stay up later than anybody else just because I could. Well, one night, I was almost asleep on the couch when I heard a noise on the front porch. It was the sound of our old-fashioned porch swing moving back and forth. I was a little scared, so I crept toward the bay windows of my living room and peeked out toward the porch. Sitting on my front porch swing was an older woman, probably in her 50s, wearing nothing but a nightgown covered in blood and holding a huge kitchen knife. I flipped out immediately and ran screaming into my parents' room, but was too terrified to form words. My parents saw that I was upset, but when I was finally able to tell them what I saw, my dad got really angry and told me that it was just a dream and to go back to bed. I refused and kept crying and screaming until he had had enough and snatched my arm and dragged me toward the front door to prove that nothing was there. I kicked and screamed all the way, trying to make him stop, but he kept pulling me. Finally, we got to the door. He unlocked it, swung it open, and said, See, there's nothing that... To this day, I have never seen the look of fear and shock that was on his face when that woman turned and stared at both of us and slowly stood up with the knife. My dad slammed the door shut and got my mom to call the police while he went and got his gun. He went back to the door with a 12-gauge and cracked the door enough to stick the barrel out. He asked what she was doing, and she said, Somebody killed my husband, but it wasn't me. My dad told her that the police were coming, and she freaked out grabbed the knife, and walked away. The police found her 15 minutes later, trying to break into one of our neighbor's houses. I never slept in the living room again. When talking to my mom, she said that they never really found out the whole story, but apparently, she was crazy and off her medication. Her and her husband got into a fight. and She tried to attack him with the knife, but didn't seriously hurt him. When he got out of their house, She cut herself with a knife, either trying to commit suicide or make it look like the husband did it. The police never talked to us about it, so that's just what they heard from the woman's neighbors. I'm going to have to turn to our judges on this one. That story sent in by Octagonopus was not technically on Halloween. She says that it was a true story, though, so... Is that good enough, Judges? Oh, that's it. I've had it with this dump. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Okay, just calm
0: down. All right, apparently, little Petey the parakeet's head is not the only one that's falling off. Headless body and street mistaken for Halloween prank in New York suburb. They're used to jack-o'-lanterns and plastic skeletons when Halloween rolls around in sleepy Farmingdale. So neighbors on one block thought someone really got creative with a headless body on one side of the street and a bloody noggin on the other. But this was no decoration. It was the remains of beloved, 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 SUNY professor Patricia Ward, who was butchered by her psychotic son before he threw himself in front of the Long Island Railroad train. I saw a head. It had long, black, straight hair. I did a double-take, thinking it was a stupid little shrunken head you'd hang on a, it's a Halloween thing, said David, Dale Silverman, 59, who had been driving home on Secatog Avenue near Eastern Parkway on Tuesday night. I laughed like an idiot. I just laughed. By then, a crowd had formed to soak in the bloody spectacle. Neighbors who saw the body, which lay out in the open for more than 20 minutes until cops covered it with a sheet, touched it to make sure it wasn't plastic. One guy was tapping her head with his foot to see if it was real said Dean Corbo, 42, who spotted it while stopped at a nearby stop sign. Some houses around there have pretty elaborate Halloween displays, so it wouldn't have been weird if it was fake, Corbo said. What they didn't realize is that moments earlier, Derek Ward, 35, had beheaded his mom with a knife, dragged her lifeless body outside, and finally kicked her head down the street. She had suffered broken ribs. Who cares about the broken ribs? She has no head. <sighs> she had suffered broken ribs and multiple stab wounds before he finished her off. Ward, who lived with his mom, was a raging steroid addict with a criminal record including gun and drug charges. Mr. Ward has a psychiatric history dating back approximately 10 years, said Detective Lieutenant John Azada of Nassau Homicide. It exacerbated itself within the last year. It just seemed he was just acting out. Family friend, Kathleen O'Donnell, said that Patricia was a wonderful, heartfelt, warm person and she would do anything for anybody. All I can say is the son had a lot of problems. Neighbors were stunned he'd learned the truth behind the horror scene on their quiet street. Our son told us he'd seen a body with no head. I thought my son was making a prank or he was fibbing to me. He's 16, you know how 16-year-olds fib, said Sean Lufkin, 47. Then, the next thing we know, we see helicopters and cops swarming over here
1: the trick-or-treat murder by New York Daily News thanks new (laughs) all the ghosts and goblins had long been tucked into their beds on that Halloween in 1957 when Betty Fabiano heard the doorbell ring at her home in Sun Valley, California, just outside Los Angeles. It was past 11 p.m. Figuring it was just some late-night trick-or-treater, her husband, Peter, 35, got up and walked downstairs to answer the door. Isn't it kind of late for this sort of thing? Betty heard her husband ask. She couldn't hear a response, just a muffled voice of what sounded like a man impersonating a woman. There was a pop, then a thump, then a screech as a car sped off into the night. Fabiano ran downstairs to a sight more horrifying than any nightmare vision of Halloween. Her husband was sprawled on the floor, unconscious, blood pouring from his chest. He died on the way to the hospital. Cause of death was a 35-caliber bullet lodged beneath his heart. No one could fathom a motive for what newspapers dubbed the "Trick or Treat" murder. Fabiano, 35. <laughs> I think we already discussed that. Who had served in the Marines during World War II had one brush with the law—a minor bookmaking charge in 1948. He had long ago gone clean, and police could find no connections to his past crimes. For several years, he had been operating a couple of prosperous L.A. beauty shops and had settled into a comfortable domestic life. It took two weeks before the police came up with a character who might have wanted to see Fabiano dead. Joan Rabble was a divorced 40-year-old freelance photographer who had worked briefly in one of Fabianos' shops. She told police the Fabianos were two of my closest friends. She was telling only half a lie. As in many marriages, the Fabianos had recently hit a rough patch in their union, and they had tried living apart. During the trial separation, Betty bunked with Rabble, and their friendship blossomed. This did not sit well with the spurned husband. When Betty decided to take another stab at domestic bliss, Peter agreed, but on one condition. He didn't want his wife to see rabble, or bring her to the house, or talk to her, or about her ever again. Police now had a motive. Jealousy. The most virulent type. A woman scorned. On November 16th, they arrested Rabble. She insisted she had nothing to do with the murder.
0: Murder.
1: That she had been home when Fabiano was killed. As proof, she pointed out that her car had been parked outside her door all night. In questioning some of Rabble's acquaintances, detectives discovered this was another lie. A friend, Margaret Barrett, said that Rabble had borrowed her car and driven about 37 miles that night. When confronted with this fact, Rabble said she had taken a short drive to pick up groceries. But she repeated over and over that she did not pull the trigger. Although she had lied so many times before, in this specific detail, she was telling the truth. With nothing more to go on, authorities had to set Rabble free. They continued to comb the city for clues. The big one turned up a month later. An anonymous tip led cops to a rented locker in a department store. Inside was a 38 caliber pistol. Ballistics confirmed that it was the murder weapon. A scan of sales records of the gun shops in the area led to the owner, Meek and Mousy Godine, Pizer Forty, a laboratory technician at Los Angeles Children's Hospital. It did not take much of a grilling to break her down. Pizer cheerfully confessed to pulling the trigger, but she insisted it was not her fault. Someone, another woman, had cast a spell on her, and she was powerless. The seven galley in a skirt was none other than rabble. Police hauled Rabel back in. She was present, but uttered not a sound, as Pizer told all. The two women had known each other for about three years, but it was just recently, after Betty Fabiano had severed all ties, that Pizer and Rabel became very, very close. In those months, Rabel's major topic of conversation was Peter Fabiano, She called him, Pizer recalled, evil and vile. A man who was destroying everything around him. Pizer believed her and grew to hate Fabiano even though she had never seen him. She said he mistreated his wife and that he was dealing in narcotics, Pizer told police. She told me that he was always bothering her at home. Pretty soon, Fabiano... Was all that they talked about. Hour after hour, rabble would rail about her rival's evil nature and his cruelty to his wife and his children. Within two months, Pizer was certain Fabiano was a monster—one that had to be destroyed. Joan and I discussed killing Fabiano many times. Pizer said in her confession, "We were undecided whether we should use a gun or a knife." or poison they finally settled on a gun with money that Rabble gave her, Pizer bought a revolver in Pasadena giving the dealer the totally plausible story that she needed it for home protection she bought only two shells Halloween night, Rabble decided a time when a person running around in the streets in a disguise would not raise an eyebrow was the perfect time Rabble brought Pizer to Fabiano's beauty shop a few times in October, so she would know what her target looked like. The night of the murder, Rabble showed up at Pizer's home in a borrowed car. Pizer's costume, which Rabble had in a bag, was not elaborate. A pair of jeans, a khaki jacket, a hat and red gloves, a domino mask, and dark face paint disguised her features. They hid the gun in a paper bag. The two women drove to Fabiano's home, arriving at about 9 p.m., and waited two hours until the lights went out in the bedroom. "'All right, go do it,' Pizer said, rabble told her. So Pizer put on her mask, walked to the front door, and rang the doorbell twice. Fabiano entered the door. Pizer was trembling so hard she could barely hold the gun. I had to use the left hand to hold the right hand in order to pull the trigger, Piser said. Her shakiness didn't matter. She hit with dead-on accuracy, and Fabiano hit the ground, mortally wounded. Piser rushed back to the car, where Rabble kissed her and said thank you. They dropped the car at Barrett's house in Hollywood, leaving the khaki jacket inside. Forget you ever knew me, were Rabble's parting words. On foot, they went their separate ways. Pizer cut up and burned the rest of the costume the following night and stowed the gun in the locker where it stayed until police found it a month later. One of the two bullets was still inside. Charged with first-degree murder, Rabble pleaded not guilty and Pizer insanity. March 11, 1958, just before their trials were to start, they cut a plea deal for second-degree murder. The deal sparked a public outcry viewed as being too soft on a killer. But Pizer was so pathetic that it seemed unlikely a jury would send her to the gas chamber, even though she confessed to killing a stranger in cold blood. And the killer skirted justice. It would be impossible to get an accomplice convicted the following month the pair swapped their street clothes for new costumes as prison inmates which they would wear for the rest of their lives and that's about all of the true scary Halloween stories that we have for you this week tune in again next week when we'll have part two thanks as always Jimmy Haunted thank you for listening we'll see you again right here next week. God bless you.